Yeah, it's a joy to, to partner with you guys in the work of the gospel. So uh, thank you, first off, for just sharing Josh with us uh, numerous Sundays. So our brother came and preached God's word to us faithfully, and it was a blessing to our congregation. So it's, uh, it's a joy to be able to come down here and preach to you guys and share with you guys the word of God. Thank you, uh, Pastor Brock, for all the hard work you do. And thank you also just for you know, giving pastors breaks. So Josh, I don't know what Josh, I trust he's worshiping Jesus somewhere, but um, yeah, it's good to kind of get out for a while and strengthen like Jesus would go away for a time to pray, then he would come back, right, strengthen. I trust the same is being done for Josh. So I just, we pray for this church, Congress Heights Community Church, we pray for this church, we're thankful for your ministry, and look forward to all that the Lord will continue to do in your midst. Uh, as Pastor Brock mentioned, we will be in here in, Pastor, in uh, Romans chapter 8. And uh, I'll start with a bit of an illustration. Maybe some of you have heard of a guy by the name of Michael Phelps, Olympic swimmer, right? Most decorated Olympic swimmer of all time. He's an American swimmer. He accumulated 23 gold medals, three silver medals, and two bronze medals. Uh, but what you may not know is what it took to get all of these medals. Uh, in preparation for one Olympics, Phelps did 75 workouts in 24 days. From 1997 to about 2005 or 6, he averaged some 10 workouts per week. He said that all he did was eat, sleep, swim, and lift. And uh, he would do pool workouts from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m., 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. He would swim some 50 miles per week and consume 12,000 calories a day. And we ask why? why. Why in the world would you put yourself through all of that? His answer, quote, my goal was to win one Olympic gold medal. So Michael Phelps disciplined his body. He put it through rigorous training. Why? Because of the hope of future glory. The future hope of glory ordered his life in the present. And brothers and sisters in Christ, so it is with us. Same thing. The story of Michael Phelps is an illustration of a core biblical principle of future glory that motivates present obedience. So we think about Moses, right? Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for or because he was looking to a future reward, right? So it was the land of milk and honey in Canaan before them that led the Israelites to continue wandering in the wilderness. It was the joy set where? Before Christ that had him to endure the cross. And so do you struggle to get on in your love for Christ and neighbor? Do you find it difficult to press on after having experienced some kind of hardship? Maybe if you're not a Christian, maybe you're trying to think about these things. Do you see a world of brokenness? and are tempted to give up. Well, friends, the call here this morning is to look, or this afternoon, to look to the certainty of the future glory of heaven in order to be strengthened here in the present. That's what we'll think about this, morning, this afternoon. Hope in future glory in order to be strengthened for present godliness. Future glory motivating present godliness. That's what we'll consider from Romans 8, just a bit of context for Romans 8. Paul here is writing to the church in Rome from his church plant that he started in Corinth. And he begins with creation in Romans chapter 1. And then he narrows the argument here to chapter 8 by thinking about heaven. And he's trying to help the church in Rome understand how the whole world fits together in Christ. 
And just before our passage in Romans 7, he's talking about how it's difficult for him to change even as a, as a Christian, right? Amen? Right? We all have that struggle. We're in Christ, but we struggle to do the things that we ought to do. And then he moves in to chapter 8. Uh, in this chapter, they call it the great eight, right? So many amazing things in this chapter. So I'm just going to focus, though. Look at chapter, chapter 8, verse 24a. Seven words. I want to focus on those seven words. For in this hope we were saved. I want us to think about that, and we'll just sort of look at all the kind of constellation of verses and ideas around that idea. And so three points this morning. Here's the, Actually, four points this morning. Here's the first. Uh, first, salvation comes by trust in past grace and the hope of future glory. Salvation comes by looking at past grace and also in future glory. Take a look, Romans 8, 18. Paul says that all of creation there is groaning. It's groaning because the Lord, it says, subjected it to corruption as a consequence of the fall when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. So as a consequence of Adam and Eve's decision to rebel against God and go their own way, God then uh, subjected creation to corruption. That's verse 20. When they chose to rebel against God, therefore sin, death, corruption, then entered into the world. So think of it this way. Creation was sort of like a tall drink of glass of uh, beautiful clean water. And then just one tiny little drop of poison gets dropped into the cup. And corrupts the whole thing. That's what he's saying. Creation was that tall glass of water. And all of it got subjected to creation. As a consequence of Adam and Eve's decision to rebel against God. And that by the way is how death. How disease. How corruption. How brokenness entered into the world. Brokenness friends is not a consequence. Of a socially constructed ideas. That's a man centered way of understanding the world. Corruption, brokenness, these things are consequences of a world that rejects the good authority of God and desires to go its own way. That's how we got where we are. And so creation, Paul says, eagerly longs. This is a sense in which creation wants something. It eagerly longs. It longs to not just to return to what it had in Eden. No, no. More than that, it longs, it says, to give birth to the even greater glory it will have than the new heavens and new earth. That's what the world, if the world could talk as it were, right? that's what it's longing for. But how will that glory that it longs for, how will it come? What is the hope of creation to kind of reverse the curse? Well, look at the end of verse 20. Paul says, In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation is groaning under its bondage to corruption and it wants to obtain this, quote, freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what it's looking for to get what it wants, to be set free. But what's that? What's the, quote, freedom of the glory of the children of God? Well, look at verse 23. There's your answer. It's, only, uh, it's not only creation that groans this way, but also those who hope in Christ we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we, here it is, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Unique Christian claim, by the way. Christians understand body and spirit will be redeemed at the return of Christ. So Paul says that creation groans and eagerly waits to have the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what creation wants. And the glory of the children of God is what Paul calls Full adoption as sons. And what is full adoption as sons? 
the redemption or the resurrection of our bodies. That happens at the return of Christ. Okay, now, if you're confused, you're going, wait a minute, I thought Christians already had adoption. Well, slide back up to verse 15. You would be right. Right? You can see that we who are in Christ, we have been adopted, but right now we're only experiencing the first fruits of that adoption. The full privileges of our adoption are realized when we receive the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 23, the redemption of our bodies. Or in a word, glorification. Glorification for the Christian is when, like Jesus, in His resurrection, our sanctified soul comes together with our glorified body. And again, that happens at the return of Christ. And so for those of us that have repented of our sins, that gospel you hear Pastor, Pastor Brock preach, Right? When we've repented of our sins, trust in Christ. Trust Him to take the penalty of our sin. His resurrection becomes our new life. We are then counted just because He paid for our sin and transferred His justification, His righteousness to us. We have that adoption. We've been reconciled to God, but we're still waiting for that full adoption. We had a, a couple, for instance, to illustrate this point in our church um, that illustrated a boy out of Korea. His name was Parker. And there was a point at which they had the full rights of adoption to Parker. Parker was theirs. Yet they had to wait all these months to fly over there to Korea to go and to get him, to bring him home. And that's sort of what it's like now. This is what John even talks about in 1 John 3, 2, when he says, quote, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Isn't that a great thought? Not as he was, we will see him as he is, the glorified Christ. So Jesus died for sin, he rose bodily for sin, he ascended into heaven, and he will return bodily to bring heaven to earth. And this is the final stage, the full adoption, full redemption, and restoration. That's our hope, right, as Christians? This is what we hope for. This is heaven's Glorified bodies, worshiping a glorified Savior on a glorified heavens and earth. Creation is longing, groaning to see that come about because it knows that it too will be glorified on that day. And so there, when that happens, when Christ returns and it is all perfectly restored, there you have the final state of a world completely restored and glorified. And it is after this, guys, that we get those words that floored me on my sabbatical five years ago. I'm reading through the New Testament, trying to think about the hope of heaven, and I read verse 24a, and it stopped me in my tracks when I read it. Probably read it a thousand times like you. And then there it was when Paul says, that's the context, this full adoption, when he says, it is in this hope we were saved. What hope's he talking about? The hope of glorification. Wait, what, Paul? Florida. Paul says that it is the hope of future glorification in which we were saved. And so I wonder if this maybe surprises you a little bit this morning. It did me, again, as when I first read it. Because, right, we rightly, what do we do as Christians in healthy, gospel-loving churches? What are we doing? We're fighting for the gospel of justification, right? We want to make sure that's so clear. We want to make sure, right, that we look back at the cross and we see that's where I was saved. And that, I want to be clear, that's true. So Brock doesn't come up here and tackle me. That's true, right? That is true. That's the gospel. We're fighting for that. How do we know we're saved? Well, we look back. You heard me say that earlier. We look back at Christ, His life, death, res uh, the power of His uh, sacrifice on the cross. There it is. 
Jesus said, it is what? Finished, right? It's done. But Paul goes on to meditate more on what the Gospel purchased. And so the reality is, as we think about our justification, our righteousness in Christ, by grace through faith in Him alone, that righteousness that you have in Christ, right? your justification, the reality is, friends, if you are in Christ, you will never be more justified than you are right now. Does that blow your mind? You will never be more, because you have Christ's righteousness, not your righteousness, right? You have Christ's righteousness imputed or transferred to you. And so in heaven, you'll have always have his righteousness, right? So that counted, that grace-based uh, counting of righteousness will never be more than it is today. However, we all know that we lack something, right? We still lack so We're not living perfectly in that righteousness that has been credited to us. In fact, our bodies even still ache underneath uh, all of the aspects of sin in which we struggle too. So there's both a spiritual and a physical thing in which we still uh, are lacking. And that's what we get in the glorification. When Christ returns, we get perfectly sanctified uh, minds and spirits and bodies. And this is why Paul goes on to say in verses 24 to 25, we don't hope in something we already have. See it there in verse 24 and 25? For those of us in Christ, we already have justification. We don't need to hope in it. We have it. But we do not yet have what? Glorification, which is what he talks about. And that's why Paul says that this is the hope in which it will be saved. It will be complete what has already been begun upon his return. So J.I. Packer puts this really well in his book, Knowing God. He says, quote, Justification, this free gift of acquittal and peace, won for us at the cost of Calvary, is wonderful enough, he says. But justification does not of itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. In idea, he says, you could have the reality of justification without any close fellowship with God resulting. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship. He establishes us as His children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God, the church, in justification is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, is even greater, he says. It's an adoption, full adoption, that we're looking forward to. We have it, but we don't yet have it. Already? Not yet. So we as Christians are people of hope because our greatest hope, our greatest certainty is not yet realized. We do not yet have what we want. God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? What Jesus prayed for. Resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth because of the resurrection of our great Redeemer, friend and Lord, Jesus the Christ. We don't yet have glorification. Or in another more commonly used word to describe all of this, we don't yet have heaven. We do have heaven, right? We're experiencing part of that, but not in its fullness, not what it will be when Jesus returns. And so hopefully by now you can see why I was a bit floored by that reading. Paul says the hope in which we were saved was the hope of heaven. Now what he means, again, because he reflects so much on the gospel of of Christ, is that what I said at the beginning. This trust in past grace at the cross and in the resurrection, which then gives us confidence that the future glory is going to come. And then it's these two things in which we're saved. We're saved by looking at past grace, the cross, the resurrection, which builds our confidence to future glory. And then what we're going to find in this next point, that then motivates present obedience. 
That's the second point. The hope of future glorification is the fuel for present sanctification. The hope of future glorification is the fuel for present sanctification. We thought about how past grace and future grace is the hope in which we're saved. Now we're thinking about sanctification and the way in which we can be sanctified, Paul says in Romans 8, is this picturing of this future glory. That's going to motivate us in the same way it did Michael Phelps in a different kind of glory. In verse 18, take a look, Paul talks about our, what? Present sufferings. These sufferings tempt us, don't they, right? All of our sufferings tempt us to give up in some ways, to stop following Jesus for whatever reason, to walk away from the faith. Or we might be tempted to think that the present suffering that maybe we're experiencing might lead us to believe, well, maybe God doesn't love us anymore. Some of us might be tempted by that thought. Well, Paul moves from that present present suffering to discuss glorification, as we have already rehearsed. And that's the context, guys, for that much-loved verse in verse 28, 828. And we know that for those who love God, how many things? All the things, right? All things, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. And and then after that, in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then what? Who can be against us? And then he lands his argument at the end of chapter 8 by declaring that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, you have the acknowledgement of present weakness, verse 18, verse 20, being counseled by the fact that God is not only doing something now, but he's working all of it together to bring about this hope of a future glorification. And you can see that in the middle of chapter 8, verse 31. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he what? Also glorified. It's done. Notice it's in the perfect tense. Present weakness is informed and inspired by future glory. We cannot be separated from the love of God. He's working all things together for one great end, future glory. Therefore, Paul's instruction to us is to have uh, is to have us consider our justification of the past, yes, at the cross, that then gives us confidence for future glory when we will have the redemption of our bodies. Therefore, that should compel us to obey Jesus now in all the difficulties in the present life. And this goes back again to my introduction in Michael Phelps, right? The hope of future glory compels discipline in the present. That's exactly what the author in Hebrews does, Hebrews 11, right? He talks about this with Abraham and Moses and David. That's why Paul understands it to be the way for us in the same way, right? So I love that there's an old line that I've heard. I love this. He says, if you want, this guy says, old French guy, I can't even pronounce his name. But he says, if you want to build a boat, don't, don't go assign tasks to people and tell them what to do. Instead, build for them a vision of the immensity of the sea. That'll motivate them to go figure out how to build a boat. So it is with us. So to review, we've said, first, salvation comes by looking back at past grace and to future glory. Second, the hope of glorification is the fuel for present obedience. And I wonder, by the way, guys, how much are we thinking about heaven? Paul says that's the hope. How much are we thinking about it? That then leads us to the final two points. Here's what I want to do. What I'm going to do is I'm going to show you why heaven is so glorious that it's worth suffering for in the now. And then we'll finish by helping cultivate a hope for heaven. That's what we'll do. Third point, why heaven is so glorious and worth hoping in and suffering for in the now. Why heaven is so glorious. This is the most fun part of the sermon. 
Hopefully you enjoy that. In verse 18, as if it's not already been fun enough, right? Studying God's word. But anyway, in verse 18, Paul says that the sufferings of this present time, he says, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us in the future. Sufferings of this present time, not even worth comparing to the glory that's coming. And then he goes on to explain, again, all that we went over. The glory of heaven, the glory of a resurrected earth, populated by blood-bought, resurrected bodies of the redeemed, basking in the glow of our glorious Savior, Jesus the Christ, who laid his life down for us. This, in other words, Paul, this is what, it's not even worth comparing. That's going to be so great, all the sufferings won't even be worth comparing to that. In other words, Paul is saying that if you took the suffering that we have to experience both spiritually and physically in this world, in this time, and you compare that to the glory that we will experience in heaven, he says, no contrast, no contest. They're not even worth comparing. It'd be like saying, like, which is heavier, a Ford F-150 or a ballpoint pen? It's not even worth comparing. We don't even need to compare the two. He's saying that heaven is so great that it's worth suffering for him now. Another illustration that Paul gives in verse 22, and I use this illustration with fear and trepidation, uh, as our sister Natasha here would bear testimony to, childbirth, right? Childbirth. I have not given birth, obviously, to any children. I've been in the room where both of my sons were born, and it looks awful, right? Oof. Oh, boy. <laughs> right, but right, this child that comes is very, very painful. But on the other end of it, it's glorious. Right? Aren't you glad that you have that child? So it is in our present, present world. We're going through all the sufferings like childbirth. And the world is groaning. Parent, we got wars going on in the Middle East. And wars in Russia and Ukraine. We got wars on the continent of Africa. We got internal spiritual battles happening here. And it's all these, chi- it's all these like uh, birthing a child and what's going to come is glory in the end. It's going to be worth it to stay the course. Follow Jesus through it all. Evil, when Jesus comes, evil is vanquished, sent away to an everlasting punishment, and we put on our everlastingly glorious bodies and live on a glorified earth. It will be so amazing that like childbirth, the present sufferings will be worth it. So far as we follow Jesus and hold fast to Him. Cancer, car accidents, murder, heart attacks, persecution, martyrdom, mockings, depression, shame, whatever other physical uh, sufferings, they are not even grains of sand in comparison to the immensity of the mountain of the Lord that we will live on. Same with spiritual sufferings. Doubt, the struggle to obey the Lord's commands, memorizing scripture, to show up to church on time, to love neighbor, to love enemy, to pray, to fast, to forgive, to give, to prefer others over ourselves, to evangelize. All of these struggles, these sufferings, they can't even be said to be flickers in comparison to the light of the sun. All these sufferings, spiritual and physical, they are momentary feathers in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for us that love and treasure Jesus. And so soon enough, beloved, your back pain, your cancer, your depression, your shame, your guilt, your struggle to do as Jesus would have you, soon enough these struggles will cease And you will rest on the shores of the Jordan River. You will eat honey, eat the honey and drink the milk of the new Canaan. You will sing the songs of the angels. You will bask in the glow of a glorious Jesus that makes it all possible for his everlasting glory. And you will work. Yes, you will have a job in the new heavens and new earth. You don't believe me? Go read Isaiah 65. 
Do your work, but every waking moment of that work will be better than the best vacation you ever took on this earth. You will attend church and it will not put you to sleep. It will be the worship there will will not bore you in any way. You will look forward to that worship more than you look forward to Sunday evening naps. Thanks be to God, it will not be filled with people that look just like me or just like you. To the praise of Christ's glory, it will be full of all kinds of the diversity of all the nations. People from north and south and east and west. With all of their different shades and textures of hair and tonal languages coming together like a symphony on full blast for our great collective treasure, Christ the Lord. We will eat the choicest foods and drink the richest wines. We will walk on the roads uh, there that will blow like delicate breezes across our glorified heads. The light of day will never fade as the glory of Christ will shine brightly forevermore. Isaiah tells us that those who wait upon this Lord, our strength will be renewed. We will mount up on wings like eagles. We will run and not grow weary. We will walk and not grow faint. The soil that we will sow in will be drunk with the glory of Christ. The air that we will breathe will be drenched with the excellencies of Jesus because God will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. He will be all and in all because the dwelling place of God is with man. And that leads us to the most important part of heaven. Heaven is the household of God. He is its fancy. He is what makes it all glorious. Apart from Him, there is nothing but darkness and decay. But with Him, we have our all and all. Christ Himself in His resurrected body is the darling of heaven. And we will be dazzled by His infinite love, which will be infused into every aspect of the new earth. This, beloved, is the great hope for which we have. This is what we look forward to. If even the worst of our experiences here on earth cannot compare to it, then surely even the best of our experiences do not compare to it. Therefore, do not live for this world. Set your minds, as Paul tells us in Colossians 3, set your minds on things above where Christ, your King, is seated. Not on the, not, don't trust in the things of the earth where rust and moth destroy. It is in this hope that we grow and persevere in, this, in the faith. As Paul says, it is in this hope that we are saved. So don't buy the trinkets the world is trying to sell you. Resist the visions of the good life that this present world of darkness is deceiving you by. You will never have enough money. You will never have enough vacations, enough friends or family members. You will never have enough job titles to compare with the glory that is coming when Christ returns. And so the more that this vision for your life takes over and sinks into your heart and becomes the great hope for which you live, the more you will know the joy of your salvation. Build your treasures in heaven, not on earth, where rust and moth destroy. And so you might be saying, okay, Nathan, I get it, but how do I build a vision for life like this? How do, I, how do I do this? How do I learn to hope in heaven? How do I learn to be think about the glory in front of me to motivate my uh, present obedience? How do I do that? Well, first you need to begin by recognizing this is going to take some time. Like everything that's worth doing, it's going to take time to just kind of see the world and live for this world, live for that world in this way. So let me help you do that, and that's how we'll finish. So we've said so far, just to review, salvation comes by trusting in past grace and future glory. The hope of future glory is the fuel for, for present sanctification. Thirdly, we've documented that heaven is not worth comparing to uh, this present world. 
And so we ought to suffer through it. So now we're just going to apply it. How do we do it? Four ways. The first one will be like, wait, what? Here it comes. First way that you can build a vision for the glory that is coming is by joining and, uh, and then gladly participating in a local church. How about that one? Like, what, really? All the things you could have said, Nathan. Join and meaningfully participate in a local church. Let me see if I can convince you. If we are going to or be oriented by heaven, we need to be meaningfully committed and acquainted with heaven's people. Just like if we wanted to know what life is like in Bolivia, and we knew that there was some fellowship of Bolivians on the other side of the town, we would go spend as much time in those gatherings so as to get a taste of Bolivia now, right? So if you're going to grow in your hope of heaven, you must join and meaningfully participate in a local church. And Paul, by the way, assumes that. Look at verse 22. Look at all these we's in the passage. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. Verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption. Verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul assumes this collection of people that are trusting and hoping in Christ in his return. And so, yes, it's true. Jesus saves us individually. That's true. To have a personal relationship. Yes and amen. But Christ does not save us alone in order to keep us alone. It means to bring us together. Like any adoption, you were chosen so as to be brought into his family, his church, with his wife, the church. So, friends, I have never met a Christian. I'm getting to be an old man. I'm 48 years old. I've never met a Christian that was meaningfully growing in their love for Christ that was separate from a local church. And likewise, I've, I've met tons on the other side, people that weren't doing well at following Jesus that were apart from a good local church. To neglect the church or to keep her at arm's reach is to do the same to Jesus. And to remember that it is the church, that it is we that are the what? Citizens of heaven, as Peter says. We are the redeemed out in front of time. Our life together is supposed to be the appetizer of our life together in heaven. And so if you want to grow in your love for Christ, building treasures in heaven, move closer to his people and learn to love them. Don't just date her, commit to her. Join a church and watch how the Lord can grow your vision for heaven by living amongst the citizens here on the earth. Think of the church covenant. I don't know if you guys have a church covenant. We have a church covenant. That's your life together. That's your, yeah, good. That's your thing. That's your Michael Phelps plan as to how you're going to see glory in Christ and its coming glory. So have a vision for heaven, meaningfully join and participate in a local church. Two, this one will be shorter. Learn to wait eagerly. How do I build a vision for future glory? Well, you learn to wait eagerly. You see it there in verse 23. It sounds like a contradiction of terms, doesn't it? Waiting eagerly. But interestingly, that word for wait there in the passage is the same word we use for our word hope. And so the image here is likened to waiting in a, is, is not likened to waiting in a doctor's office, sort of doing nothing like, oh, when's he going to come? That's not the image. It's a kind of hope-filled waiting. It's waiting or eagerly longing. It's this hoping, it's trusting it's going to come. Waiting eagerly. An illustration of this. Uh, years ago, I took my sons. They love baseball. We love baseball. He goes out to a St. Louis Cardinals game, and there's he's about this tall, and he's you know got white blonde hair. He's standing there, and he's looking for Yadier Molina and Matt Carpenter and all these guys that we love. 
And he's standing there on his tippy toes, looking to see if they're going to come with a baseball in his hand and a pin in his hand, hoping to get their autograph. And he's just looking down in the dugout and hoping they're going to come. That's the image. Just sort of sitting on our tippy toes, waiting for Christ to return. The difference is we don't have to wonder if the superstar is going to come out. He's coming. Right? He's coming. And we know he is. So we can wait eagerly for that to happen. And so build rhythms into your life where you teach yourself to wait eagerly for the glorification of your body on the earth. Maybe that is, you know, just simple. My back has literally been hurting recently. And so I've just been telling myself a day's going to come when it's going to stop hurting. Right? It may not be for the next 20 years, but a day will come. Right? Maybe it's asking the Lord to come soon in your prayer life. Right? Even in your life together, Pastor Brock and Josh are up here praying, like, God, come back soon. Ask that. Build that into your prayer life. Another one. Here's one of my favorites. When I preach this sermon, our folks still talk about this, but it's been so helpful to me. Literally, it's, Scripture seems to indicate that maybe Jesus will return from the eastern sky. Maybe just take a walk and just look to the east and stare. And just wait. And say to yourself, I've done this before. It'll, it'll mess with you. Look at it. Okay, not now. Maybe, maybe now. No, not now. Okay, maybe. No, still not yet. Okay, maybe, but maybe. No. Just look to the sky. Just anticipate his return. That he could come at any moment. Another one, remind one another that Jesus is coming back. Right? When you're going through trials and tribulations. Just tell each other. Listen, Christ is going to return. It's going to be all right in the end. It stinks now. But remember, right? Heaven and all of its glory is not even worth comparing to this hard struggle that you're going to. Speak it to each other. Another one, sing songs, right? Which I know you guys do that, that anticipate the soon return of Jesus. Sing songs about the return of Christ. Wait eagerly for the return of Christ. Don't be found asleep. Third way to build this glory, this hope in a future glory. Wait patiently. Wait patiently. Right. Now that sounds more like what waiting is. Waiting patiently. You can see that there. Look at verse 25. You can see that there. And this is in part. Waiting patiently. Uh, how do we wait eagerly and wait patiently? God wants His children, friends, to be eager about His return. But He wants the expectations of His return to be appropriate. So for Christmas, for instance, one year we gave the boys a, a trip to SeaWorld. And we were going to... Uh, we were driving on our way down there to Orlando and on our way down there. Um, we would be asked by uh, our kids time and again, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are you there yet? Right? That is not waiting patiently, right? It's not waiting patiently. So we would respond to them something like, well, we'll be there when we get there. Be patient. It's hard to do, but that's the framework we need to have. We need to understand. We need to be waiting for it eagerly. It's going to come but waiting for it patiently, knowing that in the fullness of time it'll come. Eagerly anticipating it, but trusting in the fullness of time that it will return. And we recognize, right, sometimes this is hard for me. Right? It's been 2,000 years. Right? 2,000, that's a long time. We've got to keep patient. Being patient. Exactly, we ask, how long will it be? And he will return. And I love this line from Richard Baxter he wrote to impatient Christian who thinks it's been too long. He says this. He says, as God has established the four seasons, so they come at the same time every year. 
And just as God promised to rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt after 400 years, so did it come in that time. And just as Daniel promised that the Messiah would come in 77s of years, so did Jesus come up at that exact time. Jesus, right, came in the fullness of time. Baxter goes on to remind us, quote, As God has given the stork, the crane, the swallow to know their appointed time, He will surely keep His time. When, he, when we have endured a hard winter in this cold climate, will not the revival of spring be seasonable? God has answered every single promise of His timelines. And there's been hundreds of them. He's not been late on any of them. There's one left. One. And He'll bring it about in the fullness of time. We trust Him for that. So we can wait eagerly, but wait patiently, knowing that in the fullness of time we'll come. Fourthly and finally, how do, we, uh, how do we build this hope of future glory? How do we see this and build rhythms in our lives? This one's the most important of all. Consider Christ. Consider Jesus. Attempting to construct a vision for the Christian life in heaven so as to orient us in the now is no easy task, right? It's easy to navigate a vision for life as a lawyer. You go down to the law firm, you kind of see what's going on, right? You, uh, same with the American dream, right? Maybe that's the dream that motivates so many in our country. You can go down there and you see the white picket fence and the house and the car and the like, and you see it all there, and that kind of motivates you in a way. Well, remember what the first point, look at your family life together. That's one way of motivating, but we, we acknowledge that it can be difficult to sort of Orient our life in heaven in that future glory. And so orienting our lives by a future reality that is so all-encompassing, so full of glory, void of pain, it's hard to imagine. So the answer is, Hebrews 3.1, consider Christ. Consider Jesus. That's a command, by the way. Consider Jesus. Study Him. Not as you would Abraham Lincoln or Frederick Douglass. Study Him as you would a lover. See what He's like. Not just what He says, but what He's like. Notice what he loves and what he hates. See what his miracles do. Consider them as previews of heaven. Consider that it was the joy that was set before him that he endured the suffering of the cross. And then pay attention to his life after he resurrects. Think about that. And then map all of that, all these beauties of Christ, onto a view of creation that takes away all of the bad and enlivens all of the good and you'll get some help of picturing this future glory of Christ in life with Him. Consider Jesus, the resurrected and reigning Jesus, because after all in heaven, He will be our chief delight. By the way, if you're not into Jesus, you're not going to really like heaven, so I don't know why you'd want to be there. And so if we're going to change, guys, if we are going to change, like really change, we're going to have to learn how to rehearse our past justification that is present, and it'll be future, we look at our past grace, consider future glory so that we might then get on in our present sanctification. It will be by gazing longer at the glory that is to be revealed to us in heaven. And soon enough, church family, we will be home. We'll be there. Soon enough, we'll be home. But until it comes, may we be found eagerly and patiently waiting for its arrival. Because, as Paul says in Romans 8.24, it is in this hope that we are saved. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this beautiful passage.
and for the hope that's found in it. Jesus, we exalt you, the crucified, resurrected, ascended, and soon returning Savior. Jesus, we thank you for our past justification that is currently and will be future, that our righteousness is in Christ. We thank you that you have promised us a home with you in heaven. Jesus, you promised us. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there, you may be with me also. That's what you're doing in heaven, preparing a place for you. And this place, as we see here, is full of glory. And you will give to us what Jesus, you have already experienced. Resurrection and glory. And Lord, all of that glory and all of that resurrection is only because of you. It's only for you. And so as we consider that world with you, as Jonathan Edwards said, a a world full of love, may it motivate us then for our present obedience. May we even be willing to suffer for the glory of Christ and the good of his gospel so that we might be more clearly delighting in what will come. We love you and we thank you that you first loved us. Come, Lord Jesus, soon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.